I don't have a name. You want to know my name? No, no, I don't. I don't want to know your name. You don't have a name, and I don't have a name either. No names here. Not one name. You call me. Maybe I am, but I don't want to know anything about you. I don't want to know where you live or where you come from. I want to know nothing, nothing, nothing. You understand? You scared me. Nothing. You and I are going to meet here without knowing anything that goes on outside here. Okay? Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Film historian Stephen Benedict and I are going to look at Last Tango in Paris, starring Marlon Brando, Maria Schneider, and directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. What does this have to do with boxing? Well, there is a slight mention that the Paul character that Marlon Brando plays used to be a boxer. And I think there is a conversation with Last Tango in Paris with On the Waterfront and Terry Malloy and that kind of pathos of the could have been a contender is somewhere inside this destroyed, suicidal, violent Paul character. And I just thought it was a strange way to look into that feeling of middle age and especially middle age for boxers. And if you can look at this film through that lens that so many of our favorite heroes in boxing have confronted why they hang on forever. Um, I think this offers some insights and some clarity, some disturbing <laughs> clarity. And obviously this is, uh, Pauline Kael called it a landmark in movie history with Brando's performance. And it's a highly disturbing film Schneider described it as, as being emotionally raped. Um, it's extraordinarily controversial and very powerful and disturbing. And anybody who watches this film and says, oh, it's not that erotic, it was never, ever meant to be an erotic film. Um, it's all about violence. And that's a through line of, I think, <laughs> what boxing has offered film as a, a way to look at the human condition, that, that backstage pass into the human condition. So I hope you enjoy Last Tango in Paris with Stephen Benedict and I. This is the same year that Deep Throat came out, and I think it's a toss-up over which was more controversial for <laughs> the sex scenes. Uh, same year The Godfather came out, it's the seventh highest grossing film of the year. Brando got 10% of that in his deal to star in this film. Wow. Uh, this is, uh, Pauline Kael described it as having the same impact as... Stravinsky's um, the spring. Yeah, so probably her most famous review for, for what this was. Uh, I encourage listeners to check that out, as well as Norman Mailer reviewed this in yeah. a really fun way. Uh, what are we looking at when we look at Last Tango in Paris? Why did this detonate on the American, even the global cultural landscape the way it did? Berlucci was a young guy. Brando is 48 years old. Maria Schneider is an unknown 19-year-old in this film. Both Brando and Schneider referred to the experience. They characterized it as rape. Mm. How they felt seeing it on screen. Uh, 
let listeners know what you think the significance is of this film, just a, a synopsis of it. Well, I think one of the things is to take into, time, take into context the, the time in which the movie is released and the overthrow of old order that had occurred in Europe in the 1960s. You know, this was, you know, this was the generation of filmmakers who had been born during the war. And Bertolucci, a, a really, really talented filmmaker, but like so many filmmakers of that generation who were now suddenly liberated from censorship, the first thing they go to is to make movies with very, very explicit sex and a lot of nudity, as if that is an expression of freedom. I think it's a really, really strange phenomenon mm. that uh, the first, you know, your default position is, I mean, don't get me wrong, Last Tango is not porn, but hey, you know, it's like when you're 15 years old and your parents go out, the first thing you do, <laughs> you know, you start looking for the adult movie channels or something like that. And I think it is expressive of, um, you know, a, a, um, an aspect of masculinity operating within cinematic, within, within the structure of cinema and um, expressing very, very problematic and deeply conflicting and challenging aspects of masculinity, representations of women, abuse, authority, power, because these are the themes that actually run through Last Tango. Um, to the point that um, I remember the first time I ever heard about it, it was, they said it was a really, really sexy movie. It's a really, really, it's a romantic movie. I mean, I went and then I remember I was old enough to go to see it. It was, it was at a revival of the Dublin Film Festival. And I came away as though I've been sitting on an ice, you know, been burned by an iceberg. It was so cold and so analytic, so much so that um, my critical faculties, limited as they were as an 18 year old, I couldn't comprehend pretty much anything in the film. OK, why this thing happened, you know, I, there were certain scenes I could remember quite vividly. Most of them actually, strange enough, weren't the sex scenes. OK, mm. um, the, the opening scene where you see Brando under uh, the bridge. Uh, I can't remember the name of the bridge in Paris. Um, uh, Pont Bia Hakim. And uh, it's one, the one where the, ra the, 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 the rails, the, the train is going over. And uh, that also turns up an in inception of people that haven't seen Last Tango. And... Um, uh, I, I remember scenes like that because the camera swoops down on Brando as he's screaming out. And immediately my reference was, oh, this is Edward Monk's The Scream. That yeah. was my, my reference point for that. So I, at least I got a little bit of that. But for me, I think the only time I've ever encountered a film like that in terms of the, it, it's the, the obsession that critics had over the sexual explicit nature of the movie was um, Blue is the Warmest Color, mm. which was outdoor 2013 and Cannes. And I remember seeing that and I was talking to a lot of critics afterwards and they said it's an electrifying film. And I thought it was a fantastic movie, but we all agreed that explicit as the sex scenes were in five years time, people won't be talking about the sex scenes because there's a lot more going on inside this film because it's about class and it's about, you know, identity. And it's really it's about class where the, um, the, the, the older girl comes from a middle class family and she has this wonderful opportunity um, to express herself and find herself and be comfortable with herself. And the younger girl going through it, she re she goes through on the much more interesting arc and she's abandoned at the end of the film. And the movie really is about her and her journey, not only in terms of sexual identity, but in terms of her, her, her life that's now going to begin. And if you go back to the last Hango, for better or for worse, a lot of the initial um, interest in the film was about Brando's performance and Brando's persona. 
And it's an amazing examination of male sexuality to the point that Maria Schneider's character, as we saw in her real life, was all but obliterated. You know, because the, 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 the point of view, not only the filmmaker, Bertolucci, brilliantly talented as he was, the vast majority of critics were male and they were looking at it from a horn dog point of view. Right. And it meant that, you know, Maria Schneider gives a fantastic performance. Really? Between you and me, with respect to her memory, I don't know whether she was that great an actress or not, because when we, she exploded onto the screen in tango, was she performing or was this her trying to deal with this really, really strange set of circumstances? She's starring opposite the what who is regarded as the greatest actor of his generation, probably in the world at the time. How can you do that? What is your frame of reference? And you've got a director who's not sympathetic towards her at all. And the story is told in her, you know, not sympathetic for her character as well. So it's really, really hard to even explain why the movie was such a such a uh, such a controversial um, movie, but also to describe exactly what it was. You know, we could describe what it is now. We the years since we've been able to plenty of time to examine it. But you know, I think you gave a really, really, really good good comparison. Uh, Deep Throat coming out in 72, you know, because when you said it came out in the same year, I was going to say to myself, oh, it's The Godfather he's going to reference. No, Deep Throat, which means that the movie is contextualized as not, a, Tango, as I said, it's not porn, it's not pornographic, but it was considered to be an adult art film with lots of sex. Yeah. Uh, the sex in it is really brutal because yeah. it's, no tenderness in it. And I think that was the one of the reasons why critics responded to it so much, because, hey, they said this is this is a, a movie that's completely dispassionate about sex. And, you know, it's, it, you know, maybe it's sort of um, part of the swingers generation. I don't know, because I, was, I wasn't alive back then. But the entire idea of casual sex, casual encounters, and this is the, the new age. And I'm thinking, actually, the movie has actually not condemning, but it's 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 sort of saying that isn't a um, that's a, it's a false promise. That idea of casual sex. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, Deep Throat. I've heard, according to some estimates, is the most profitable film ever made. It was a huge feminist cause celeb when it came out in '72. I don't know how well that's aged when you consider a movie where, <clears throat> excuse me, the premise is. A woman's clitoris in the, is in the back of her throat. You know, it sounds very male-centric. Yeah. Um, but I also think that this is a really interesting film to follow up on the waterfront and Brando, both Brando and the Terry Malloy character, because I also think a huge narrative thread of this is emotional baggage, yeah. where you already have with Terry Malloy pushing 30 in the film, as was Brando. Um talking about regret, inferiority, uh, abuse, trauma, no a system where there's just no right decision. It's just making the best of a bunch of bad decisions. And here we get Brando at 48 years old. He's had a decade where his star has significantly dimmed. Um, he's right on the precipice of becoming the Brando that is gigantically overweight in almost Orson Welles-like proportions. So all of him going from the most beautiful male ever to enter the cinema to 
kind of what you saw at the end where, I mean, I think he does that film with De Niro and Ed Norton, the, the score. Um, he's gigantic doing a weird Truman Capote uh, imp impression. But it reminded me a little bit as Brando, I mean, why I thought this could tie in even to boxing cinema. They do reference that he was a boxer early on, which is interesting. I think as much for what Brando was known for with his first Oscar win with On the Waterfront, as much as him adopting a bit of that identity of masculinity, um, is I've never met a womanizer who, this is what you were speaking to earlier a little bit in terms of this being a sexy film. I've never met a womanizer who wasn't running from damage, running from something that harmed them with intimacy, with emo emotional vulnerability. Um, and this is Brando trying to escape his wife's suicide. Yeah. And so he forces this woman, not force it, but I mean, it's, it's an ultimatum. I will not see you again after their first encounter where he's quite predatory in stalking her um, unless we don't know anything about each other. Because if we bring any of our outside lives to our intimate shared life, it can only destroy it. There's no point. And he is screaming, this visceral, primal scream of no, the moment that she tries to tell him yeah. details about herself. Yeah. So there's this escape from who he is, who he was. And I think it begins almost where Raging Bull ends with beating the, beating the knuckles against the prison cell. Right. And I'm not an animal. I'm not this. It's a lot of regret and the past. There's that great line by Paul Thomas Anderson, you may be done with the past, the past is not done with you. Um, but I mean, it reminded me a little bit of a, a friend of mine who got a lot of attention as a travel writer for traveling with no luggage. That was his thing, a toothbrush and a cell phone. And the more, I, the more I got to know him, the more I learned of all of these abortions from his rampant womanizing. Women loved him was he may travel with no literal luggage, but the emotional luggage and baggage that he carries with him is more than almost anybody I've ever met. It's just he projects this image as Brando tries to. I stand that we just drag on into this protracted thing and the rest of who we are is not going to invade. It, we're not going to be under siege from who we are and who we've been and somehow we can avoid our habits to go yeah. forward. Uh, it also reminded me a bit of Eyes Wide Shut, which was, again, like this film, supposed to be the big, sexy Kubrick's last film, an adult sex film, kind of in the way that this was. I don't know that that was ever Kubrick's intention, and it comes off as a very static, strangely asexual. I mean, it's a wet dream that never seems to happen for Tom Cruise. There's no consummation in the movie at all. Ever, yeah, ever. Yeah, it's, yeah. And I think you know. I remember so when I saw Eyes Wide Shut when it came out in '99, and you know, I said, "Is this it, really?" <laughs> but looking back, I I don't think the movie works in its totality. But there are certain sequences that are fascinating, and I think it works maybe the best when you think consider the whole thing as a dream. Right. Um. But you know, coming back to, I think I'm in a better position now, Brent, to actually address your your opening question is because, you know, um, European art cinema was the reason why 
um, um, you know, a lot of people in America would go to the art house theaters because American cinema wasn't really producing art cinema at all. Okay. Very, very occasionally would get a breakthrough like John Cassavetes. Okay. But that even, even then his films were considered art films in the way that Bergman or Bunuel or Truffaut and Fellini. And then Bertolucci comes in and he finally delivers what everyone is expecting of a foreign language movie, sex. And he delivers it and it's not what they're expecting. And then because it was so startling, uh, the intellectualism of the film is, is, uh, is, is thought to be the great aspect of the movie. And in actual fact, it disguises a lot of problems. And I think we're saying the toxic masculinity is very, very prevalent there. But also, I think for the saving grace of the film, with the exception of that notorious uh, anal rape scene, um, I think the film is a very glaring and uncomfortable examination of toxic masculinity. Yeah. What it really is. I think it's, um, and as you said, the, the, the Brando coupling it with on the, on the Waterfront is a really, really clever idea because we see Brando at his near zenith as a young man in On the Waterfront. And then we have this phenomenal 1960s procession of films that one after the other didn't really connect with audiences. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Brando is um, becoming very, very involved in the civil rights movement, as well as connecting very, very strongly with the Native American tribes. And for, better, for, for, for one reason, which is very obvious, not only because of the box office failures, but the, the studios consider him to be trouble. He's problematic. And so he drifts away a little bit from um, Hollywood movie making. And in 1969, he makes a movie called Burn, which you, uh, directed by Julio Pontecorvo, who made the magnificent at the Battle of Algiers in 1966. And... Byrne focuses on the slave revolt in a Portuguese sugar plantation and Brando plays a British spy and um, uh, he, he, supports the, he supports the slave revolt, but not because he's in, fa he's, he's, um, in favor of the, the, the black people on the plantation. It's because he wants, as a British emissary, he wants to boost the price of sugar for the British to come in. And, and so the movie is all about colonialism and imperialism. Uh, Brando in his, in his autobiography um, spoke, he regarded it as one of his best performances. And he regarded Ponte Corva as one of the best directors he ever worked with. Uh. Kazan being another. And I think when he comes to make um, uh, Last Tango, Bertolucci had approached him. He said, look, Marlon, I don't want you to what I really want to do is I want to take off the mask. Okay, I want to take off the mask of Stanislavski. I want to take off the mask of Marlon Brando. I want to examine the mask, as you said, the baggage. And so Bertolucci is coming out of this in a very, very different way. And it's significant what, to, to, to add in the layers of that significance. When we see Brando for the very, very first time on the bridge and he's screaming out, we're looking at Terry Malloy, we're looking at Viva Zapata, we're looking at Stanley Kowalski. OK, but the amazing thing is we're not looking at we, we, we as an audience would be. But Bertolucci, when he was looking through the lens of the camera for shooting those scenes, he wasn't looking at Don Corleone because that movie had yet to be released. Mm. But they, they started shooting, I think, in February 1972 and The Godfather was released in March 72. Mm. So Bertolucci is not trying to pull away the mask of. Don Corleone, but it's an amazing comparison then to look at 
his portrayal of Don Corleone. And then the next year, we're looking at Paul, whose surname we never know in Last Tango. And I think the movie works in that respect because it is peeling away the, the persona of masculinity, what we put up, that the front that we project onto the world, that we're all powerful, we're all knowing, we're all seductive. And completely, you take away the mask and it's pain and hurt and confusion, you know? And um, that would be one of the reasons why perhaps it caused such a, a shock in 72 when it was released. Because looking back and reading the reviews, very, very few of the critics actually had the, the forbearance to admit to this is masculinity in crisis. And by the same token, Pauline Kale goes off the deep end. I mean, I mean, her review was three and a half thousand words. You know what I mean? I mean, that is the longest, most sustained orgasm a critic has ever had over a movie that I've read. You know, she was very good in certain points, but I think one of the reasons why she gushed so much about the film is because she she actually got a sneak preview of the movie before other critics, and she wanted to be the first to the post. And right. it's Pauline Kale who did that. There are plenty of critics who not only want to be right, but they want to be first. Mm -hmm. By putting down the mark, we're saying this is the rights of spring by Stravinsky in our, our generation. It puts it up to every other critic to agree with her or have the daring to say, no, I think you're wrong. But certainly, I mean, I know Sean Penn at the time of Brando's death pointed to this and a number of other actors have pointed to it as one of the great performances that have ever been given, on top of which uh, the vast majority of it was improvised. I mean, I've, I've read the original screenplay. It bears very little resemblance to this. And Brando is endlessly drawing from his actual background from two alcoholic parents who were in an abusive relationship He's shipped off to military school where it's even worse. He's gone through at least a decade worth of therapy that sort of began with uh, really his success with Streetcar on stage before on film. Um, he's really somebody who's lost, self-destructive. Um, and I mean, with this film, one of the things that's interesting to me is, well, a couple aspects is I would, I would, give a little more credit to Maria Schneider for this performance uh, because I think if you see what she did, I, I agree that this, I think this film, it's fair to say, sort of destroyed her personally. Um, and she certainly never wanted to be naked again. She did not want to be the sex symbol. So when she did The Passenger with Jack Nicholson and Antonioni following this film, uh, I believe she was on a lot of pain medication. She became a pretty serious drug addict to illicit drugs as well. Um, she is somebody where it seems like there was some struggle to assert her own sexuality in life, uh, which I think is important in, in terms of public, in her view, that this was an emotional rape um, and that it was public the way it was, that anytime she'd walk into a restaurant, people would mention butter to humiliate her. Uh, but I also think it's interesting in that Brando, his uh, emotional abusiveness to a willing party, to a consensual party with Schneider's character, this 19-year-old, who's vying towards, this is the self I want to be with Paul's character, versus being pursu pursued by the star of all those Truffaut films, yeah. um, the film director and everything who's stalking her. 
yeah. who I don't think I've ever seen somebody more annoying on film than that actor and that performance on top of it. I yeah. uh, just can't stand him. But I think what you get with her is that rape is sort of Brando trying to, like we see with so many uh, abusive families, there's a history of abuse that gets handed down to almost create equilibrium within the family. I need my identity to be, to be shared by my child right. sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you can feel that as Brando is harming her and seeing that it's harming her, um, when he has quiet moments where he's unobserved, he breaks down. This is Brando, who is the only film star I can think of in the 1950s, who not only ran away from homosexual encounters that he had, but openly said, I've sucked some dick. You know, mm -hmm. like just really upfront at a time where even into the 80s, you had the denial of closeted gay men dying of AIDS who would say they died of cancer or some other terminal illness. Um, Brando, for some reason, just gets a pass. <laughs> Because he's so super heterosexual for, <laughs> for, for heterosexual men. Right. So I think that it is quite something not just to have Brando um, have a, I, I think Mailer referred to the opening sex scene as if somebody lit it through a grenade, grenade under these two and they just blew apart, which yeah. is kind of what it looks like. It's not a scintillating romantic encounter. It's quite the contrary and I think he also said, which was an interesting observation, that a one-night stand may be the emptiest experience you ever have or the most profound right. on some level. And it seems to have both. When you see these two coming together, it's a very interesting chemistry. But I feel as though Brando asking a 19-year-old to stick her fingers up his ass yeah. and clip her clip her nails which you don't hear as much brought up but again we're going somewhere where it's not just an art house movie where this is happening but the biggest star that hollywood has ever produced beckoning in very crude language incredibly memorable crude language uh, you know being entered by a woman's hand a young girl's hand as he's talking about a pig fucking her and breathing in pig farts and just this vulgarity that's yeah. almost poetic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of bordering on, you know, I mean, it's heterosexual, but it's bordering on Jean Genet territory. Right. 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 Very true. I think that's, that, that was one of the reasons why it was so shocking. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, again, it holds up in, a, in an unbelievably problematic way, but it's again, worth discussing. It's not a movie. It's sort of, dismissed by saying oh it was, it was there was nothing there i think though there's also you know you were talking about her boyfriend tom played by jean pierre and i agree with you his performance is really irritating but i think deliberately so yeah because, um by cast you see this is the, these are the layers that run through the film by casting the young actor the the, the antoine duanel who had appeared in truffaut's films as truffaut's alter ego it is almost as if Bertolucci is paying reference to and gently mocking Truffaut as a filmmaker. Mm. This idea that a filmmaker can capture truth, the elusive truth, the, the sort of uh, the ephemeral truth of life and the beauty of life and the love of life and the love of the moment and through documentary. And in a way, Tom is trying to reveal and document um, 
uh, Maria Schneider's character, sorry, I've forgotten her name, the character that she plays. Jean. Thank you. So okay. where he's trying to document Jean's character and Jean's life in a way that Paul doesn't want his life to be documented at all. Right. It's, it's all sort of an overexposure. Okay. And that's the real dichotomy here because Brando exposed himself so emotionally in the film. And it's interesting as well because the, the scene where he, he, ex, he sort of unloads the greatest vitriol, I think, is when he's talking to the corpse of his dead wife. Oh. The, it is painful. You know, the, the absolute avalanche of hatred. Um, on the, and then also of the mystery, which he actually wants to continue. You know, because the mystery, he can't understand why his wife took her own life. And he wants to maintain that anonymity or that mystery into anonymity. Um, and then in another layer that Bertolucci brings in is the casting, not only of Brando, um, but also of the minor characters, because his late wife, as we know, had a lover called Marcel. And the casting of Marcel, I think, is very significant. It's one thing that I don't think is highlighted enough. The character was played by Massimo Girotti, who was a very important Italian, direct, uh, Italian actor who first appeared to, to, to audiences outside of the, uh, out, excuse me, to audiences outside of Italy after the war with a movie called Ossessione, which was directed by Lucchino Visconti. Now, I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but we've got to understand how many layers you can read a Bertolucci film. Okay, we've already referenced the fact that uh, Jean's boyfriend is played by Antoine Duhamel, who was Truffaut's alter ego. In Bertolucci's previous film, The Conformist, um, he uh, metaphorically and cinematically murdered his cinematic idol, which was Jean-Luc Godard. Okay, um, because um, he actually gave away Jean-Luc Godard's telephone number in the film. Wow. And the character that Godard is, is, is personified by in the movie is a, a former professor for the young uh, Jean, um, Jean-Luc Tertignon's character. And he goes off to assassinate his former professor in college. And that's what Bertolucci was actually killing off his cinematic father with Godard. And then he goes to the next great French um, cinematic figure, Truffaut. And he ridicules and mocks him. Now, just to come back to the idea of casting Massimo Girotti in the, Massimo Girotti in the film, um, Lucchino Visconti was his cinematic giant in Italy from 1943. So he would have been another Oedipal figure that Bertolucci had to wrestle his way free of. And so he takes the character of the actor Girotti and he puts him in the movie. Now, that may just be an illusion in itself, but I think it's significant because the movie Ossessioni was subject to severe censorship. Hmm. under Mussolini to the point that it was almost it was banned it was condemned by the Catholic League and Catholic Church in Italy and also because it was an unofficial adaptation it was an unauthorized adaptation of a novel written by James M. Cain called The Postman Always Rings Twice so that movie itself was banned in the United States because MGM owned the rights to the movie and so what I'm trying to say here is nothing in this film outside of the improvisation that deliver, the Brando delivers was was accidental. Bertolucci very, very meticulously covers in so many different layers of the movie to the point that um, Jeanne's mother, Rosa, is played by a legendary Italian actress called Maria Michi. Okay, now she appeared in a movie called Rome Open City, directed by Rossellini. 
And so again, we are referencing other films. So when Bertolucci is making this movie, he's referencing cinema in general, specific films, but that brings us back to the entire idea of Brando as a persona, as a screen himself, not an actor. Right. Not a screen actor, a screen through from behind which he hides and onto which we project ourselves and our estimation of what a man should be. Right. Well, no, and as 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 Zizek said, um, cinema isn't there to tell you what to desire, it's there to teach you how to desire. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I think that that's very interesting because as we're talking about masculinity in crisis, who is America's most emblematic example of exported masculinity and imported masculinity? It's Marlon Brando. Yeah. You, know, you don't have T-shirts, undershirts, jeans, <laughs> a, work, a working class sex symbol. If you remove him, you might not have Elvis. You yes. might not have James Dean, you know, that whose whole career was based on doing Brando. Yeah, you know? yeah. that's really good because, again, you know, um, Brando, as you said in the T-shirt, that streetcar named Desire. And in Tango, we see him in a white T-shirt. And it's it's not the muscular, beautiful body. It's an aging body. Well, it's a middle-aged body, yeah. you know? And the thing is that Brando, when he arrived on set the first time, the first day, he caked himself in makeup. And Bertolucci said, no, no, we're going to take this off. And he had to literally take it off, peel it off by handkerchief, smear it off his face. And, um, you know, that literally is a, an enactment of what Bertolucci wanted to do with the film, is to take away, take away that screen. But another thing that I find interesting um, is that the, the trajectory of the characters, uh, that Jeanne is in a relationship about to get married. She's married to Maria, I think, in a fortnight. And the movie takes place over that, that, that short stretch, stretch of time. And so um, at the beginning, she believes very strongly in love and attachment. And at the start, Paul doesn't. And by the end, he actually is in now a position to, he's, he's sort of purged himself of this grief of losing his wife, and he's ready to begin a relationship, I think, in a way, in a fumbling way. And because I've been with you for the last two weeks, hey, let's give this a go. And at the end, she doesn't believe in it. She doesn't believe in him. She doesn't believe in this notion of anonymity, and she kills him. So the characters go in a, a, a sort of in a completely different directions. Interesting. Well, and also I think you could argue that Brando creates a self-fulfilling prophecy by violating his rules and by unloading all this unasked for baggage about where he's come from, um, that it proves his point yeah. that, that you can't run away from who you are. I mean, it reminded me, I remember kind of a similar sort of brief, uh, re relatively anonymous encounter, somebody I'd barely met. And at the conclusion of what seemed very pleasant was told, whatever you do, just don't stop talking to me. And I thought, N there's no evidence in what has transpired that would lead me to that conclusion, but now I'm so afraid to find out your justification for preempting me. Uh, <laughs> I, need to, I need to not talk to you again, because I'm too scared. Yeah. There, there is, um, it's very interesting to me the way Brando looks at himself. Like, I think the... I think that there are two arresting things with celebrities where you see tremendous self-awareness or the complete absence of self-awareness. And Brando, Brando is so much of the former that, you know, when he, 
when he says at the end of the film, how do you like your hero? And right. he's not quite looking at us, but the camera is on him and he's just askew of our eye contact. I think, uh, like Tarantino said, the sign of a good action movie is if you want to dress like the characters. Right. Brando has been instructing men how to be men for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying all men, but I'm just saying, culturally speaking, um, he is the most powerful <laughs> advertisement for how to be a, be a certain kind of man that America has embraced. Um, suddenly you're looking at him, as you say, middle-aged, a lot more vulnerable. This is somebody where he's breaking down, crying. Every time he lets out huge aggression and blow-ups, you see him recovering from it. He just doesn't have, uh, doesn't have the ability to hide any longer that the anger is just covering this pain. And a lot of the pain is there is confusion. Um, yeah. as, as much as he's screaming at his dead suicide of a wife, you see him break down into total confusion. He's lost and he covers it in this way. And again, I think this is a bit of a credit to Maria Schneider. When Schneider says to him, you're getting fat. You know you're old. You're getting fat. Fat is it? How unkind. Half of your eyes out. And the other half is almost twice. You know, in 10 years, you're going to be playing soccer with your kids. What do you think of that? You know what I'm going to be doing? You're going to be on a wheelchair. Maybe. But you know we know where that's going to go. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. You're you're losing your looks. You're, you're losing your looks. You're getting fat, and you can feel she's not awed by Brando's charisma. Yeah, yeah. That's she's got good. her own charisma, where she is a tremendously charismatic person. Whether or not her acting ability is wherever that lands. Um, she goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Brando with charisma in a way that Jack Nicholson said she was the female James Dean. Well, yeah, um, you're, yeah. sorry to interrupt, you're absolutely right, because, you know, the way she dressed, there are a lot of women who were dressing at that state that way in, 19, in the early 1970s, but my God, she had charisma. She was able to carry those boots and the short skirt and that amazing, I think it, was, it wasn't a fur coat, but and that hat, yeah. now, and that takes confidence that takes self-awareness and that takes charisma and it's interesting because obviously maria schneider was not bertolucci's first choice i think she was at least the fifth or sixth and i'm going to name the three actors that were on top dominica sanda who had appeared in uh, the conformist was approached and she said no uh, stefania sandrelli which is another who had also appeared in the conformist i think she said no because she was pregnant and then catherine Deneuve. Oh, wow. That would have been interesting. It would have been interesting, but I can guarantee there's absolutely no way that that butter scene would have taken place. <laughs> right. Because I think that's part, I think that's part of the, the layering brain is because she was an unknown, a, an actress of Catherine Deneuve's stature, her self-awareness, her, her persona, she would have sensed something was going wrong before it happened. Right. right? Now, I'm not saying that Maria Schneider didn't have a radar, but she, because she was Maria, Maria who, um, by comparison, she was thinking she was in awe in a way or intimidated by to let it. I'm not saying she let it happen, but just to 
it's very, very problematic for us to use the proper language here, but just to sort of to, to play the scene, you know? Well, and she said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but she did make the point to say, I didn't know what I could say. I can't do that. Yeah, consent. Yeah. Yeah. She, she wasn't aware that that was required. I mean, there was a sex scene that she was in the script that was supposed to happen, but the butter thing was something that was improvised by Bertolucci and Brando, where they wanted to keep it from her to get the emotional shock of the scene. Now, again, it was sim simulated, but nonetheless, those are real tears that she's crying, according to her. I think to, to examine that scene and maybe the film overall, you know the way we've been talking about recasting the movie in, in our other discussions? Yeah. And what has always amazed me for this is that the, although she was not credited with being the co-screenwriter, uh, Bertolucci wrote the, the original screenplay with Franco Arcali, who actually was an editor as well. Uh, uh, Arcali had edited The Conformist, uh, Bertolucci's previous film. But the person who's, a, who's credited with um, writing some of the dialogue is Agnes Varda, the great French Nouvelle Vague film director. And I'm mm. thinking, how would that movie have panned out if Varda had directed the picture? Mm. Because I think um, the wonderful thing about Jeanne's character is that her boyfriend Tom is completely unaware that she's having a, she's having a relationship with Paul. Right. And just the way Paul wants everything to be completely anonymous and secret, it means that Tom, who thinks that every moment in film, every moment in life can be captured by film, and there, therefore the woman can be framed, you know, with the cinematic frame within the camera lens. It means that Maria, sorry, Maria Schneider's character, Jeanne, is actually free. Hmm. She, she embodies this, this, this space where uh, she can enter into the relationship with Brando, unbeknownst to her boyfriend, because she's actually an independent, resilient woman. And she knows how to play the camera. She knows the whole artifice, the construction of film. And therefore, she knows the construction of marriage. Do you see what I'm saying? Or yeah. I'm trying to say, okay. And again, that brings in another layer into the film, which is imperialism. Because who did, you know, Jeanne's character, her father served in the French army in Algeria. That's the, that's the great, that's the disastrous foreign war that France had. They lost Algeria as a colony. It's, and then we've got the, the black French characters in the movie who are on the periphery and you see them in different rooms. And so what, what Bertolucci is then layering in is another, another aspect is relationships as a form of colonization. Yeah, that's they, fascinating. And that way, I, I would love to have been in, this, in the room when Brando and Bertolucci thought of that scene in that morning to say, because it really is a colonization of her body. He yeah. possesses it. And by not telling her in advance, isn't that part of imperialism? We're going to invade you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. So that, that's one of the reasons why the film is infinitely interesting, but and at the same time, really, really difficult, you know? And um, yeah. um, the difficulty still makes it interesting. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I also think like on the, the lack of self-awareness level with Brando, there's a great exchange between the two of them where he says to her, this anonymity means that you're free. Yeah. You're free to be who you are. And she says, I'm not free. Like we're both prisoners 
in this. I'm a prisoner to this, and you won't allow us to have a life outside of this room together or know who each other is. This is not freedom. Yeah. And of course, Brando is not free. Brando is clearly prisoner to his wife, prisoner to this identity he has now, whatever he was before, where we hear the woman literally, like Norman Bates, cleaning the bathroom, cleaning the scene of the crime. Yeah. Of X is saying he was an actor, he was a boxer, and now he's this expatriate, we don't know why, who's running a flophouse hotel. Again, we don't know why. The wife apparently had it or whatever. We don't really gain any details about what their marriage was. Um, and this magical scene of doubling where he meets the man who his wife was secretly cheating on him with, well, and they're yeah. wearing the same robe that the wife has given them both. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've, I completely forgot. Again, another thing is when we look at Brandon, we think about the T-shirt and we look about Stanley Kowalski. If any one of your listeners have lit, have seen uh, the movie Ossessioni, the first time Girati appears on screen, he takes off his jacket and he's just in this white vest. And the camera, Mrs. Conti pushed the camera up to him from the from the woman's point of view, and she says, "My God, you're built like a stallion." Hmm. Okay, so again, you know, there's um, there's many many different layers running through this, but also I think, Bryn, the interesting thing what we're talking about here is how the movie was received in '72, and how we look at it now. And Roger Ebert wrote a, re a re review of the film, I think, in the mid '90s some 20 odd years after the film was released, 23 years. And if I can just read the quotation, he said, um, it was, uh, it, it's like revisiting the house you used to, where you used to live and did wild things you don't do anymore, wandering through the empty rooms where, which are smaller than you remember. You recall a time when you felt the whole world was right there in your reach and all you had to do was take it. And he said in, um, Rewatching the film, that he was more familiar, he was so familiar with the film that he was making contact with the art instead of the emotion. Mm. So I think it's strange because I find it a very, very cold film, you know. But if you, if you don't mind, Brent, I'd just like to talk a, a little bit about the the artistry in the movie, the way the movie was actually made. I mean, it's a, it's a sumptuous looking film. It's beautiful. Yeah. But there's two great collaborators that. Um, Bertolucci had for the vast majority of his great career when he was really in a zenith. One was the director of photography, um, Vittorio Storaro. And Storaro would then go on to light Apocalypse Now, okay, and Reds, and he won his third Academy Award for The Last Emperor. Um, and, you know, what he loved doing, what Storaro loved doing was moving the camera. And if you watch Last Tango, the camera doesn't only move, it sort of caresses. It's just beautiful. Um, little tracking shots or uh, the camera, the way the camera would pan across the room. And a lot of that was owed to his camera operator, um, Enrico Umitelli. Now, I mentioned him because I think camera movement is really integral to the film. It's, as I said, he was incredibly sensual, but also it's the way the, 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 way that the rooms were dressed, yeah. you know, like the way the actors were undressed. Um, uh, the, the production designer in the film is a guy called Fernando Scarfiati. And he was, a, a grand, again, a great collaborator of Bertolucci. And there's a great scene, there's a great element in that empty apartment. Um, you may have noticed that there's this huge 
undefinable shape off in one corner of the apartment and it's covered by this massive sheet. Right. Okay. And the rest of the apartment we barely see. I think there's a ladder in, in another room. And that's the reason why they have sex on the floor because there's nothing else to sit on. And so the first day that when they arrived on set, the first day when they're shooting in the apartment, Bertolucci goes, what's that over there? Like, what have you, what have you covered up with that, with that huge sheet? And Scarfiati says, I don't know, but I, th- I don't know what's under it, but whatever you do, don't uncover it. <laughs> because what Scarfiati was doing was he was actually visualizing Marlon Brand or Paul's id. Do you know what I mean? He was visualizing the psychological, psychological state of the character. And again, that's one of the reasons why the film is really, really interesting to examine. It's maybe un, an unpleasant experience so much the movie, but it's incredibly rich. And the interesting thing is what we're talking about now is none of the stuff that the critics wrote about back in 1972. Right. Um, and I think um, it just shows how much the film was um, misunderstood. This sort of sex fest. I, I think it's interesting also because it seemed to me, I mean, I remember really relating to some of the, the empty feelings emotionally. I mean, coming from a, a breakup or something with the first girlfriend and finding this film and just going, ah, somebody's been there before. Boy, this is ugly, but at least I'm not alone in feeling this kind of emptiness. Um, but I I was particularly struck by the speech where post-coital conversation leads Brando down a path of the trauma that's kind of a bit of a Rosetta stone for him. He talks about uh, having growing up on a farm, wanting to go to a dance. His dad doesn't let him go to the dance. He has to milk the cows and he's got cow shit all over his shoes. And when he gets into the car with his other classmates, he's endlessly mocked for how it smells and it ruins his night. And that humiliation and embarrassment is a huge component of who Brando is, yeah. at who he became, like the the cover he had of this strength yeah. and uh, the rebelliousness and the anti-authority and all of that is to cover what anybody who knew him intimately, I mean, read his autobiography where there's almost nothing revelatory in it. Mm. He, he just did enough to get the money and yeah. get out. Yeah, um, but everybody who knew him said he was one of the most sensitive people they'd ever met. Um, obviously, was enormously attractive to women. I mean, all of the actresses who worked with him—it's not just his physical beauty, but intellectually. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was, a, yeah, and that's true. I mean, you see him in an interview in the '60s, and the, firstly, the fact he's able to speak fluent French, which would be highly unusual for a Hollywood actor at the time. Yeah, and um, his his mastery of accents was brilliant. I mean, he had a wonderful English aristocratic accent, admittedly, which is easier to master, but still. And he had this phenomenal interest in the world and read, read so widely. But coming back, you mentioned um, Sean Penn. Yeah. One of the reasons, clearly, why so many actors revere him is because of his risk Yeah, to go there, to expose themselves emotionally, um, which is the hardest thing, surely, because, you know, one of the things... And, you know, Brander spoke about this afterwards. He never wanted to, to expose himself emotionally that way again, because, as you said, he felt violated. Um, it's just the, the, the danger that the actor would be made a fool of 
you know, no actor wants to go onto set and for the director to pull the rug from under them and they having placed their trust in the director, when they see the whole thing on screen, the audience is going to laugh at. And yet that's what Brando, I think, was alluding to in the in the in the in the scene where he's talking about going to the dance, is that he so many of the stories he's recounting relate to humiliation and vulnerability. Right. You know? Um, and I think that speaks in a huge way to kind of this ethos of boxers in cinema is yeah. that what what drew all of them into the arena of being half naked, risking your life, beating on somebody and being beaten on is they almost all emerged from the same place emotionally, same address, humiliation, damage, sensitivity, vulnerability. These aren't the tough people that emerge. They're the people that dealt with trauma by fighting back. Yeah. Yeah, I, th that's the thing. You, you fight back to, to, or you, you lash out or you're aggressive to hide your vulnerability. You right. Know? right. Um, but what I think, what I'd love to see is um, the movie told, you know the way we've been just discussing about, is the story told from the right point of view? I think it is told from the right point of view because Bertolucci and Brando were a very, very interested in the character of Paul, but I would love to see the, a, a version told from Jean's point of view. Yeah. And from Jeanne as a middle-aged woman, hmm. you know, um, and in the common parlance as a cougar, right, <laughs> that we have today. Or, you know, she just, she, she hooks up with a young guy and she doesn't want to have anything. She doesn't want to know anything about his, his, his life and all this sort of stuff. Or maybe, you know, just, just to, to break it out from the, the, the male gaze, you know, because definitely the, the angle of the film was to, was critiquing, like Vertigo's we, we mentioned when we were talking about On the Waterfront, it is in no way venerating masculinity here. It, it's it's descaling it. It's coming, bringing it right down to its best. Right? It's an indictment of masculinity. Completely, completely, you know, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it's not so uncomfortable to watch because it is so raw and you know, heaven forbid, we, we actually do see some of ourselves in Paul's character. And again, you know, as I was saying to you, the entire idea of a screen where we project ourselves onto who Brando is, one of the great, one of Brando's greatest performances, I think, that is often overlooked is from 1967. He made a movie with John Huston called Reflections of a Golden Eye, hmm. where he plays an army officer who's married to Liz Taylor and he's gay. And there's a phenomenal scene in the movie. It's very, very short. He comes in. Houston treated the film in such a way that actually that the whole the whole of the frame is is it has this golden hue. It's late at night, and he's looking at himself in the mirror, and he utters this line. He says, "You talking to me?" Hmm. And he goes upstairs. And I'm not sure, but I have good reason to believe that that was De Niro. Interesting. De Niro that line. You know, um, and that's the thing about the, the legacy of of uh, Brando is that so not only so many actors have taken on his um, his his method, but so many filmmakers have been quoting from the movies that he made. Right. You know, this is what Bertolucci was doing, because when we look at On the Waterfront and that great scene when he says, I could have been a contender that turns up in Raging Bull at the end of Raging Bull. And then Paul Thomas Anderson reconfigures that at the end of uh, Boogie Nights when Mark Wahlberg's character, um, Abbott's Dirk Diggler, you know, and then his, his screen persona within that is 
Brock Landers. And so he takes out his massive member and you're a star, you're a star, you're a star, which is complete inversion of what Brando was saying, what De Niro was saying at the end of, of Raging Bull. I'm not an animal. I'm not an animal. You're yeah. such an idiot. You're such, a, you know, so that's the legacy really of Brando. It, you can find it in so many unexpected places, you know, and as you said, um, would, would Elvis have appeared? Yeah. Uh, maybe not. Maybe certainly not in that, in, in that configuration. Would Mick Jagger have appeared? You know, um, because as we're saying that Brando was re-examining and redefining masculinity, I never, I can never forget the line from um, the and uh, the Stone song "Satisfaction," when a man comes on the t uh, radio and and you know, so he's talking about smoking cigarettes, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. I mean, that's that's Mick Jagger at the age of twenty-five defining masculinity. This is the Marlboro guy. No, he doesn't smoke my cigarettes, so he's not a man. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think Tango was such a, it was such a shocking film in 72, because the 60s were so tumultuous in terms of fluidity and identity. And, you know, 1968, that, that landmark year with, um, you know, with the, the, the Democrat, the riots, of the Democratic Party convention. You've got the, um, uh, the Tet Offensive in Ireland. You've got the beginning of the civil rights movement. You've got the assassination of Martin Luther King. You've got the Prague Spring. And then Bertolucci comes out of that because what I'm going to do now is I'm going to completely deconstruct the most famous actor on the planet and re-examine what, what it is to be a man, you know? Well, and, and I, I would also add what Brando represents that, that Bertolucci is looking at is the way in which, especially in American culture, as it moves further and further away from organized religion yeah. to look at meaning and death and, and all of these major themes, it move in what moves in is celebrity to fill in that hole yeah. where that's what we're worshiping that's what the church is now becoming a movie theater is mcdonald's is is these in, these cultural institutions and brando is one of those he referred to himself less as an actor and more as a merchant like like his word um but we're also with the great athletes and cultural figures like brando you know uh, Paul Simon singing about where did Joe DiMaggio go, but here's Brando getting older. Here yeah. is a new generation of people that didn't grow up with seeing, seeing the, the uh, going to opening day of Streetcar Named Desire. They have their own stars, their own new kind of teen sensations and stuff like that. Brando is kind of sometimes the way he's filmed, you can see that younger, beautiful self. Other times we're seeing something quite different, something uglier, um, a sad mask oh, yeah, on this kind of angelic face. Yeah. Um, but I think we're also, when he's saying that line, uh, how do you like your heroes? Exactly. I was going to repeat that. I was going to, sorry to interrupt. I was going to say that because in terms of moving away from religion, instead of how do you like your saints? <laughs> yeah. How do you like your heroes? How do you like your celebrities? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And and I think that what he's kind of saying there, as as much of the film is, is it's a kind of martyrdom. Yeah. There's a, there's a sense of um, the suicidal pathos of the film. It's it it's not that there isn't the harm that he's doing to this young girl and her innocence. It's that you wonder has he been more victimized than those that he's victimizing right. in the film. 
Right. And and that fills the mood of the film. I mean, it starts off. I wanted to get your take on this. Um, one of the more unusual opening credit sequences in, in I think film history with Francis Bacon. Yeah. Uh, definitely expanded his audience um, <laughs> to you know all the people who went to see this film. Bacon, this incredibly controversial artist, um, openly gay. Uh, definitely looking at homosexuality in a very brutal context. Yeah. If yeah. you, I mean, just go look up the wrestlers, uh, yeah. which is not wrestling. <laughs> it's <laughs> something else. Um, but the portraits of this man that are so famous now, some of the most valuable works of art sold are, are Bacon's, but it definitely seems like the mood of Bacon, Bacon, quite an interesting artist because he comes from no group. No, there's no, there's no movement that he's a part of. Generic, it's self-made. Totally self-made, um, in incredibly private, secretive. Um, it fits perfectly with Paul's character. But how does it? How did it strike you when you first saw this, and you just see these portraits that the palette looks similar to the way the film is kind of shot with this weird molding orange that yeah. seems to permeate. Yep. That's it. I mean, you know, collaboration with Scarfiotti, they and then um, with Storaro, they really coordinated the textures, the color tones, uh, the framing, the use of music. Um, Gatto Barbieri's beautiful score. It's it's so sad and melancholic at the beginning. It's jazz, but it, it, the music takes a while to come in. It doesn't come in on cue, what the cue you expect. Whereas the first frame comes up, the music starts. It starts in silence. And yeah. then the music comes in later. And it, it actually allows you to look at Bacon's first portrait. And um, it's emotional desecration, right? It's not that the face has been disfigured. The face is the representation of the emotional state, okay? And it is desecration from the beginning. And the wonderful thing is you've got um, a portrait on the right and then the credits on the left. And then at a certain point, then the, the, another portrait appears on the left and the credits go to the right. So it's almost like a mirror of both characters and eventually they come together on screen when they meet um but you're absolutely right uh, you, the, the the important the choice of of bacon again wasn't by chance you know obviously of course it wasn't by chance they had to go through and they negotiate bacon to allow them to use his paintings but the choice of bacon was very 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 good um you know, I don't know enough about the other artists who were who at their height at the time. So Bacon wasn't actually at his height at the time. No. But, uh, you know, who else would have been the other options? Now, they could have gone for an abstract expressionist painter, de Kooning or Motherwell, um, because they were working in these, you know, great American painters. But maybe Bertolucci said, no, I don't. I've got enough of America in the movie already with Brando. <clears throat> Third, and just, sorry, and just as an aside, as far as I'm aware, the original title of the movie, <clears throat> the original title of the movie was Last American in Paris. Huh. Okay, it would have a throwing reference to Gene Kelly's musical, and which brings us into the dance at the end of the movie with the tango, right? And then, you know, just, just going back to what you're saying about this martyrdom, you know, um, maybe Paul knew, maybe Paul wanted to die, maybe Paul knew that uh, Jeanne would actually kill him. Mm. at the end because this was the only way for anything to survive he had to sort of i mean 
Jean is in a wonderfully, wonderfully safe position now to say, look, I, I met this guy who was following me on the street. And this is he, he walked into the apartment. It was, it was completely in self-defense. Everything falls beautifully into her into her lap at the end to to give her freedom. But the the it never it's hard to watch the film without forgetting the opening images of the credit sequence. You know, um, because if you look at the way that the uh, Bacon dressed the rest of the, his frame, it's it's as barren as the apartment. Do you know? And also, I think that one of the characters actually sitting on a couch as though they're in therapy. <laughs> right. it, it, it's, it's brilliantly done. And, you know, I just want to mention Francis Bacon was Irish. I just want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, I mean, I think Norman Mailer in his review misquoted the film where he said, fuck God is the opening quote. It's not. He clearly says fucking God yeah. as the train is going over. Yeah. But um, I don't know that I've ever had the mood set for a film quite like that to see that face. Um, yeah. you, you, you do feel as though Bertolucci was able, like you, when Brando says he never really wanted to participate in acting in a meaningful way after this film because of the experience of this, unfortunately, I think we did get something from him that was incredible. To, yeah. to see and yeah at the same time uh it's yeah, it's yeah and it's just such a corrosive dynamic he's corrosive on his own but he might be even worse with this woman that wants to love him like like there's nothing that makes him want to punish her more than when she wants to be with him yeah yeah and but, but um coming on from that you know, what, what Brando gave up on the screen in Last Tango, and then he says he never wanted to be exposed that way or act in a meaningful way after that. Um, and yet he, he turns up in Apocalypse Now a huge girth on him. Yeah. Lit and framed by the same cinematographer, Vittorio Storaro. And in a strange way, you know, Apocalypse Now is about imperialism as well, taken from Conrad's imperialist novel. And he's playing Kurt, this monolithic character. And the first time we finally get to see Brand or Kurtz after two and a half hours of going up the river is this phenomenal close-up. He just loon, he lunges at us out of the dark. And that's where Terry Malloy may have, maybe cinematically, he's sitting in the dark and he's this monstrous figure. And the thing is, Brando then, I don't think gave Coppola what he needed in Apocalypse Now in that performance because Bertolucci had in a vampiric way drained him. Drained him. You know? I mean, his next picture, I think, I don't think he appeared in another picture until 1976. The Missouri Breaks opposite Jack Nicholson, um, Arthur Penn's Western, where he right. dressed as a woman. And, you know, I, I don't know, at, at that stage, I think he's just, it was complete contempt. Well, and, and an interesting thing, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but when I had a chance to interview Jack Nicholson, one of the things he told me that I'd never known before was when I was asking him about The Passenger and working with Maria Schneider, I mentioned this was uh, Last Tango, was one of my favorite films. Um, he said that actually before Brando signed on to play the role, Bertolucci had gone to Nicholson and said, if he doesn't do it, we want you. No. So... So I think that that was pretty close to to having happened. 
Well, it, that's sorry, that's just flattened my brain. <laughs> so, I mean, as a casting, what if? What is this film like if Nicholson is playing Paul? That's that's well, I can see why he would be the second choice because of carnal knowledge. Mm, that's a good point. And Nick, yeah, that would have been. I mean, I I never knew that. I presumed because you know, Brando was the the go-to guy that Bertolucci wanted because he'd said yes. There was never any backup, but I Nicholson would have been really. Again, you see, here's the thing: we're talking about recasting means a rewrite. Yeah, because you know, um, great as Nicholson was in the '70s, and I don't think he's ever been good since The Shining. Mm. Right? I think he's been playing Jack ever since, or what people expect Jack to be, or they want him to be. And um, if they rewrote it, um, you certainly—I don't think you would have gotten the great improvisatorial confessional moments that you would have had from Brando because I don't think Jack Nicholson was had that baggage to 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 rip away or to to abandon uh, in his career he was still he'd just come on I mean you know 69 Easy Rider and King of King of Marvin Gardens um and then Five Easy Pieces I mean these are brilliant performances I mean as I said to you Brynn you just flattened my brain I really didn't know that Nicholson was uh was the option and but I can see why Again, it goes back to carnal knowledge, but would he have had that that explosive, vitriolic, passionate, vulnerable regret? All those things, um, and it just shows what brilliant actor Brando was. Because good as as Nicholson is, he never had that range. No, well, I mean, and and I heard somebody make that point. Just to kind of close out on this, uh, it was said of Brando. If you looked at Laurence Olivier and said, well, who, who did better in terms of Brando and Julius Caesar or, or Olivier and all of his great Shakespearean performances captured on film? OK, like maybe Olivier can can do a little better, but put Olivier in the role of Stanley Kowalski. Can't it do would it. be awful. No, can't do it. No, no, can't do it. Brando can. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, for, for so many years, Olivier was regarded as the greatest, the world's greatest actor. He, he wasn't. There's simply no way. He may have been for a very, very short time when he arrived in, when we arrived in Hollywood and was great on stage. But he was Lord Olivier. Right. And he was himself on screen. And it was, no, he, he didn't have range. He had great ability. Um, but he was always... Um, he was always interpreting a character or imposing himself on the character. He was never the character in the way that in, the, in his youth Brando was, in the way Nicholson's youth was, in the way Meryl Streep for so long is, you know, or Daniel Day-Lewis disappears. Now, I know we can see him, but he, he, he just he, he, um, he lies out flat in front of the character on the floor, you know, and he allows the character to pick him up and dress him. Well, I mean, to, to go out on this film, this film uh, was charged in Italy for... Sanity, was it? Yeah, criminal proceedings were brought against it for aggravated, gratuitous pansexualism. Okay. There was, <laughs> there was a suspended sentence for Bertolucci, Brando, and I think the uh, some of you contributed with... Uh, and the producer and scriptwriter. 
Really? So, Frank, they all were done. Okay. All were done given suspended sentences of two months imprisonment for this film. Um, I guess also, also, Bryn, I think Bertolucci was um, prohibited from voting in elections for a number of years. Interesting. Which, given the, the rate in which the governments fell in, in Italy, probably ruled them out for voting for 20 elections in five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that this film, at least the way it's impacted so many actors and filmmakers and people who revere the performances, do you think it deserves now what, 40, 48 years later, um, is it as important as they make it sound? Some critics, Kale's review, the actors who still refer to it as being something uh, almost sui generis in what Brando offers? Yeah, I, I think for actors, yes, but in terms of filmmakers, no, because what it was Bertolucci's previous film, The Conformist, has had a much greater impact on a whole swathe of American uh, directors. And including, you know, directors from, from Asia, Wong Kar Wai, for example, the way in The Mood for Love, you can trace back some of the elliptical editing techniques that Franco Arcali imposed upon the conformist. If you look at when, when Francis Ford Coppola went to make The Godfather Part Two, he wanted Vittorio Storaro to light the film. And he says, there's no way I can equal what Gordon Willis did. And mm. um, the way that there's a certain sequences in The Conformist where it's beautifully lit, they've got cascading light down through Venetian blinds. That happens in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Paul Schrader did it in American Gigolo. Martin Scorsese has done it. The Coen brothers have done it. Wes Anderson, they all use the conformance as a template in the mm. way the last tango isn't used. I think for actors, yes. But also I would hazard only men. You know, oh, I, and this is no disrespect to Marie Schneider. As, as you, you were correct in pulling me up on what I said about her performance. But... You know, she she was um, not, um, not her character wasn't explored as deftly as Brando. So I can't see young actresses going to Last Tango and saying, I'm going to study this one um, in the way that they would go back to, I don't know, who do you, who do you want? You've got um, Claudia Cardinale or you've got Anna Magnani or you've got Jean Moreau or you've got Meryl Streep, you've got Catherine, um, Catherine Hepburn, whoever, Betty Davis, you know, go to them, watch them. I don't think they're going to be looking at Last Tango. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, thank you so much for this. This was a lot of fun to touch on. Thanks for being sprint. Thanks for right. again. Bye -bye. Thanks for listening to No Happy Endings. Our show is produced and edited by George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. <laughs>